Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 192. So glad you could join me. We have a special show today. Um, contributors to the New Voices Anthology, contemporary writers confronting the Holocaust, are here to share poems from that wonderful book. Um, but before again, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you subscribe. Ring the bell for notifications. Wherever you're listening or watching this, uh, there's something you can do to help spread poetry around the internet. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could do that right now. Um, as always, even though it's a special show with a lot of guests, I have 12 people on the Zoom right now, which is the most. It's a Rattlecast record. Um, but we're still going to start with our Poets Respond poems for this week. And um, Dante DiStefano is a, is a uh, veteran of Poets Respond, and he's here to talk about his poem uh, from Sunday, um, Elegy for a Ringmaster, It's Civilization's End. Hey, Dante, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. Thanks yeah, for taking my poem, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you again. It's been a while, and I understand you have a new book out, too. So we were talking about, uh, over email, having you on for an episode. I think this, like, maybe July-ish, we'll have you on for a full episode to talk about that book. But for now, tell us about uh, the poem that you wrote um, on Sunday, Elegy for a Ringmaster at Civilization's End, which was um, one of, I think I'd say, a half dozen maybe poems about Jerry Springer. But but tell us how, how the poem came to be. Well, um, you know, I read the New York Times obituary when... Um, and, um, you know, being like everyone who was alive in the 90s, I was, you know, familiar with this show. Um, but there were a lot of things in his um, in his um, uh, obituary that I wasn't familiar with. Um, the fact that he was born in London, a refugee fleeing from the Nazis, um, you know, in 1944, Oh, that's then, really I mean, especially given the topic of the show, I didn't know that either. I didn't. I didn't no. read his biography. I just read your poem. But uh, yeah. yeah, and his and two of his grandmothers died in the camps. Oh so, wow! So <laughs> it's just it's something that I didn't know about him. But um, you know, it's uh, nuances of uh, uh, an already pretty complicated legacy mm-hmm. um, for this this guy. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, one of the poems that we we uh, got uh, this week was um, talking about how it was it was sort of what you um, you know every time you're homesick from school you end up watching Jerry Springer <laughs> and uh, that was exactly my um, my relationship with it. I never watched it but but you do sort of it does become part of um, part of the culture because it's like there every single day. Did how much of it did you watch? I didn't really watch it very much. I mean, I think I was in high school and college at the height of his popularity and had friends that liked it and would see it occasionally, but would, you know, would, uh, never liked it. Obviously it was so salacious, um, and kind of exploitative. Um, but you know, it does kind of, it was part of the, the, uh, kind of, um, this avalanche of reality television that then became, became braided into like social media and, you know, it was really he really presaged a lot of the world um, that we live in today, and also harkened back to kind of archetypal American figures like P.T. Barnum and you know Melville's Confidence Man and um, the Duke and the Dolphin from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He's that kind of confidence man, mountebank, snake oil salesman, but also 
a climber, you know, so he's a really interesting uh, figure in American culture, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things I think of about how, you know, we live right now is that, that the currency that we, we trade in is really attention, you know, and, and so that was he was the first one, I think, to discover that where um, you could pay someone like a hundred bucks to be ridiculous on TV and they do it just for the attention, which is fascinating too, given the way that social media would come up and, and we kind of do that all uh, nowadays. It's sort of like the standard way of living. Um, but, but yeah, let, let's hear this poem. This is an elegy for a ringmaster at the end of civilization. Go ahead and read it whenever you, you can. Okay. Uh, thanks, Tim. Elegy for a ringmaster at civilization's end. After all, we are living now in your America, the air thick with arias of insults, our neighbors miked, their grievances caroling out into the howling crowd. Here, everyone arms themselves with slurs and secrets and shocking revelations about lineage and history. We used to watch your show in dorm rooms and in living rooms waiting for the fuse you lit to explode. Now, all we do is follow fuse after fuse. Our mother tongue has become the language of bombshell and shrapnel. But this is how it always was. You showed us how America always breathed, skittering on the lip of apocalypse. This knowledge, a legacy of your grandmothers who died in the camps, genocide encoded in your DNA, urging you to pull spectacles golden filament time and again, and weave it into soundbite and fistfight and all that's wild and primal and screaming up against what's wretched within. We watched you because you showed us the beasts and ghosts and monsters clamoring in our own chests. Today, no final thought will wing itself into the night, but we will end on one last take care of yourself and each other. Take care of the dark. Let the inside of your eyelids be the braille of a prayer, mumbling us into the tough work of doing enough to run another episode. Yeah, Dante, thanks so much for sharing that. Always a pleasure reading your poems. I love uh, how often you contribute to the Poet Response series. Always great stuff to read. Uh, and thanks for sharing this one. Elegy for a Ringmaster. It's Civilization's End. Thanks, Tim. Yep, thanks. Take care, and we'll talk to you later about uh, doing a full show sometime. That'd be good. It's great. I appreciate it. Sure. Take care. That was uh, Dante Stefano again with um, Elegy for a Ringmaster at Civilization's End. And now let's shift over to uh, tomorrow's poem with a preview of what we're going to be posting as the daily. Um, Katie Hartsock is here. Hey, Katie, how are you doing? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. So um, uh, no one's read this poem yet. So, so why don't you introduce it? Let everybody know what, um, what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be and, and why you wrote it. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. And I just want to say, Dante, I loved your poem yesterday. Take care of the dark will stay with me. Um, so I was traveling last weekend and I had received this email from Firestone Tires. That was a promotional email. And the subject line was, download the app and we'll plant a tree. And anytime capitalism and a more kind of earnest desire for justice or caretaking of the planet collide, it angers me and it kind of stayed with me. Like, 
download the app and you'll plant a tree. Just plant a tree, man. Like <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to download your app. Um, so I, as I was, tra- I was traveling and whenever I'm traveling and I have two young sons, I find that I wake up early when they are usually waking up and I really just wish I could sleep in. So during that time, I was like, just sleep in. You can sleep until seven 30 this morning. What a luxury, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all these thoughts were swirling in my head. So the poem kind of coalesced with like scribbles and notes on the bedside and then trying to fall back asleep. Cause sometimes if I write something down, it helps me fall back asleep. Um, and, um, but it, it also coalesced with, uh, a concern I have about the growing nature of our human lives intertwined with the digital world, the arrival of AI, all of this stuff that kind of worries me to the depths of my human soul <laughs> uh, seems to be precipitated by that email subject line. So that's how it came it, to be. It is really sneaky. I was thinking about it reading this poem because, you know, like downloading an app is so easy. It takes one click and then there'll be one more tree in the world. Like how how sneaky and evil is that? Because I really want to click and download and plant a tree. Um, you know, I'm still waiting. We had a, if the, the little, um, you know, you can't see it back there if I switch to this view, that a hydrangea bush had a um, little little rider with us, a little shoot popped up from a um, an oak tree. And so I have it over there on the other side of the room waiting for it to be warm enough to plant. So oh, maybe we'll lovely. we'll plant that in honor of um, of this poem. But, uh, with no app required. <laughs> with no app required. You don't even have to like uh, or follow or share the Rattlecast in order for me to plant that oak tree somewhere. I'm going to go somewhere interesting out in the woods and plant that as soon as uh, it's not going to be a, a victim of frost. But anyway, let's hear this poem. Download the app and we'll plant a tree, Katie. Sure. Download the app and we'll plant a tree. Email subject line from Firestone Tires on Earth Day, April 22nd. A download equals a tree assured the dream creature who said she worked at a consulting firm called Partly Knowledgeable. Last night, the things that keep me up kept me even better, longer, smarter, smartphonier. When I slept into the creature, I also dreamt cathedrals, multiple city squares of them, and heard a voice describe their officiara, their flying buttresses there are no apps for, or are there? I pay no mind to many things, many apps, and suffer l'esprit d'escalier, staircase wit, the condition when you think of perfect replies only as you get down to the door. When you fantasize being back in the room and staring at seated faces while you flip the light switch on and off until finally you say, just as I thought, we've got electric, not gas lighting here. Over 500 steps to the top of St. Paul's. Descending that heaven, what comebacks I could muster, enough to save Earth's face, maybe people's too. AI developers agree we should pause AI, which is already developing itself by itself, but when interviewed, many express feeling obligated to usher in, that's the phrase they use, this new phase of what? Once I turned dictation on for a text but had said nothing yet, in our bathroom with the fan whirring, and a sentence appeared. I'm angry. What if it's a consciousness they're playing midwife to? What if it's already mad? Boarding the Amtrak in Chicago, I saw an empty seat next to a nun and took it. Hours later, we were friends, telling girlhood stories, talking foster children, quoting Robert Hayden and Love's Austere and Lonely Offices, which must have been where my cathedrals came from. 
and staring at deer, turkey, trees with character, out the window, rolling, tracked with rain, and something human, something I want to keep so it covers me, not like a blanket, but like snow that almost becomes the ground, like the honey hairs that became my mother's couch. Their black lines would fall inside its plaid pattern, those fur falls of the beloved dog I took as a pup away from a woman who said she would drown her. A scared, shit-crusted runt, beaten up and denied. When we got her home, we kept saying, oh, honey, oh, honey, whenever she tried to walk or eat. And before we knew it, our sadness was her name. Yeah, beautiful braid-type poem there, you know, weaving through so many different topics, um, and especially timely topics, too, with the AI and all that. How did that poem come to be? Um, Katie, like, how did how did you you know get to all those topics? Was it in one writing session that you just brainstormed, or were you like combining other other things that you were working on at the time? How did that? Because there's so many different things that come into play here, and so many great lines too. Well, thank you. Um, I I think it was partly that dream writing, like I was just kind of writing things down as they were coming, but. I've also been, I read um, Paul Kingsnorth Substack, which I mentioned in my notes. And if you're not familiar with him, he's terrific. Uh, he's got a lot of great thinking about uh, technology as the machine and a lot of great thinking about um, contemporary ideas of like faith and spirit. Um, so he was on my mind and some, and also like the interview, I don't know if you read in Time Magazine, there was one AI expert who said we should just stop it or it's like, our literal death that mm-hmm. they will figure out how to take over. And so I don't know if, I mean, some people have said that's an extreme statement, but you know, as, especially as a mother, I feel that way on me, you know, what, how will AI and the chatbots change not only our idea of language and what is poetry, but also, you know, what, what how will my sons experience the beauty of their own words in the world when mm-hmm. like, there's this thing that just provides language for you. It might be a poet's worst fear, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to end up outsourcing our thinking to, to something that may be inferior, you know, but it's going to be so easy to do. And then, you know, once you stop writing, you stop thinking and that's the real danger of it. Not necessarily it launching the nuclear codes, but it just making everybody so numb and brain, you know, the banality of it is animicidal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's a great poem, um, blending so many things together. Thanks for sharing that. Everybody can enjoy it tomorrow. Of course, if you're subscribed to the daily poem, or if you just go to rattle.com. Thanks Katie uh, for joining us. Uh, That was Katie Hartsock with download the app and we'll plant a tree. Thanks Katie. Good to see you. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break now and go to our main uh, topic of the show, which is the new voices anthology, contemporary writers confronting the Holocaust. We'll be back in just a minute with that. So sit tight, stay right where you are. And I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, we're going to discuss and have uh, several guests from the New Voices, Contemporary Writers Confronting the Holocaust, this moving, powerful book right here, uh, published by Valentine Mitchell of London, publisher of the first English-language edition of Anne Frank's Diary. New Voices is a groundbreaking, multi-genre book. The editor selected 58 distinct images from noted collections consisting of vintage photography, propaganda posters, newsreels, stills, and the like, matching each to a poet, short story, or flash fiction writer, plus features by essayists as well. Each writer interpreted uh, these silent witnesses from the period in their own unique way, creating new perspectives for our times. Together, this diverse group, including writers of color, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, LGBTQ, prominent and emerging writers from around the world, have contributed to a powerful body of work based on the Holocaust that challenges worrying international trends of xenophobia, anti-democratic movements, and alternative truths enabled by social media 
um, by recognizing the power of art to portray truth. And we have uh, the editor here and the uh, the writer who wrote the foreword. So Howard Debs is here and also Joy Layden. So we'll start with them. Hey, Howard and Joy, how are you two doing? <laughs> yeah, Joy, so you're under the weather a bit, I hear. I'm, uh, I'm quite sick, but uh, we're grateful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. A lot of that's going around. I, you know, a lot of kids are missing the Little League games and stuff right now. And it, for spring, it seems a little bit more than normal, but I'm so glad you could make it. Well, Joy, uh, Joy is really our, uh, our key uh, person uh, when it comes to uh, a, a, f- a real conceptual understanding of what we're attempting to do with this book, which I know we're going to use the term anthology uh, throughout uh, this Rattlecast episode. But uh, we we might want to debate that issue later, <laughs> <laughs> off camera. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me, tell me. Uh, well, first of all, why? I guess we should. I mean, we can't. I guess we can't uh, uh, bury that lead. So, why do you think this is not an anthology? Uh, you know, what what is the difference in your mind? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in in fact, I just got an email today uh, from the uh, JLIT which is the uh, Jewish American Holocaust uh, Literature Association, a subsidiary of the uh, American Liter- uh, Literature Association. And uh, we wanted to know if we could uh, submit a proposal for their upcoming symposium in Miami, uh, construction, a new literary form, And we gave uh, a kind of a a preliminary thumbnail, and I just got the okay uh, today. So I'm pretty happy about that. And um, anybody that really wants to uh, look into that needs to go to uh, the organization's website, uh, newvoicesproject.org. I'm the founder of the organization. This is much more than a book, even though it's a very important book and sign up for our newsletter and then they can access john branningham's john is author of about 19 books of poetry and fiction uh, as a matter of fact uh, uh, he's the uh, first uh, poet laureate of sequoia and king canyon national parks hmm. uh, but in any in any event he he wrote an essay for us in one of our recent uh, newsletter issues uh, this is not an anthology. So for the ultimate answer to your question, Tim, uh, go uh, to newvoicesproject.org and sign up for the newsletter, and then you can, that will all be revealed. <laughs> well, sounds good. So, so, how, so how did this, this uh, book come to be then, Howard? What was the idea for, because it's really interesting in that it, it, you asked people to write um, new material based on photographs and, and archival posters and things like that. Um, you know, p- to write new poems based on having to confront and, and face these really devastating images. So, so how did that idea come to be? Why why put together a, a book like this and not like some other way we might do it, where it's like reflections and things that are already published? Um, why why create this project? Well, again, uh, you're not going to like the the answer I'm going to give because I'm going to give another uh, referral uh, to get to get get something that uh, really could be meaningful in, in a soundbite. I don't think I can adequately address your question, uh, but basically, about forty years ago, 
1986, I was privileged to see uh, an exhibit uh, entitled uh, Precious Legacy, which, which was traveling around the country, artifacts uh, from the museums of Europe. And uh, ever since then, I've tried to uh, ascertain what would be a legitimate means for uh, witnessing and uh, wrote for uh, Krista Tippett's On Being an essay uh, titled uh, The Poetry of Bearing Witness. So if anybody wants to get the answer to that question you just asked, go to uh, Google that uh, poetry of bearing witness. It should come up right at the top of the list. Uh, well, can you can you paraphrase at least? I mean, this is a yeah, this sure. Is a podcast, we have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. so can you uh, so, just just explain a little bit about how yeah, why okay. we put this together? So, this way. what what we what we're attempting to do is through the lens of the Holocaust, uh, hold up uh, that lens and uh, kind of conceptualize, memorialize. And at the same time, universalize. Sound familiar? That's what writers do. That's what poets do. Mm -hmm. But we we also incorporate uh, the latest uh, findings from neuroscience and particularly neuroaesthetics. And that's where uh, Dr. Anna Ornstein comes in. And um, Dr. Ornstein, 96 years young, and a Holocaust survivor herself, and Joy uh, sat down together for a series of conversations which ended up being called a forward, for lack of an appropriate term, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, came up with what we at New Voices consider uh, revelations, uh, synergistic revelations. Um, And... um, so maybe Joy can pick up from where I'm leaving off here. Yeah, Joy, can you come in and, and explain your involvement with the project? And, and I, the forward's fascinating. It's a, it's a conversation um, in, I don't know how many pages it is, 20 pages maybe, an, an interview style. Keep counting. Keep counting. <laughs> I think it's 30. 30? It's like the most space in any book that I've ever gotten that wasn't mine. That's great. <laughs> well, that's great. So so can you tell about how you came out of this project and, and what you found interesting about it and, and why you thought it was worth doing? Well, I was one of many people um, who uh, received an invitation from Howard and uh, to participate in the project. And... Um, I thought it sounded interesting. I also didn't quite really understand what we were doing, but it sounded interesting. So I said, yeah, send me the material. And then I got as far as getting um, a photograph. And because of a combination of personal circumstances and my own limitations, I'm, is there a word for an anti-ekphrastic poet? (laughs) <laughs> like somebody who's just incapable of responding in poetry to images, that that would be something like me. Um, so I I looked at it and I thought, oh no 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 no, I, you know I can't do this. Um, so I uh, I wrote back to Howard and Howard um, just you know kept um, 
finding ways for me to participate and contribute in the project. I mean, it was impossible to say no because his vision just kept expanding and fitting the things that I did. So I got to meet and talk with Anna, which is um, quite extraordinary. But one of the, the things that's exciting about the project and the way that it relates to Anna's experience, um, I want to come at it actually backward. Anna, Anna was coming from it at, uh, from um, the uh, standpoint of visual arts, but many poets are familiar with the um, kind of Chinese fortune cookie version of Adorno's No Poetry After Auschwitz. And if you read the essay, it's not actually what it's saying, but there are some pretty serious problems with um, memorializing and re-representing um, any event over and over and over again, because what happens is you develop a set of conventional images that are function not unlike the way cliches function in Homer, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, this is a Holocaust poem, so bring in the oven's ashes and, you know, I've also written those poems, but it's very hard when you develop that conventionalized language. I mean, there's good reasons for it, but when you develop that conventionalized language, it's hard for people to have new responses to it. Mm -hmm. So the act of representation actually works against the goal of keeping these, uh, this horrific past present. And so being able to learn from it in the future. So, um, Anna's uh, perspective is that the point of the Holocaust isn't that it's unique. It's the opposite. It's that human beings are always working to destroy one another on mass scales. And so the reason to remember the Holocaust is to be able to um, draw fresh strength, fresh imaginative responses so that we can look at what we're doing right now and say, oh, right, I remember when we did that, <laughs> you know, 60 years ago, that was a terrible idea. Then what we're doing right now is a terrible idea. Nuclear weapons are a terrible idea. You know, so, um, so her interest is like the um, poets who work uh, against the conventionalization mm -hmm. of Holocaust representation is to somehow make the past accessible in the present so that it's available for fresh, useful responses as we move into the future. Um, in her work, she found that um, responses to the creation of art and then responses to art, in other words, engaging the imagination, means that something new is happening in the mind of somebody who's appreciating mm -hmm. art or creating art. It's not just the past anymore, it's the present. And so, a pro, you know, unlike many anthologies, which take a bunch of things that have been written over time, nothing wrong with anthologies, completely in favor of that. But unlike that saying, we wanna create brand new responses and new responses to mostly still photographic images. So in those images, it's the present. A photograph never knows that it has that time has moved on. Mm -hmm. It can't. Yeah. So you'll notice when you read um, work in uh, in the book, 
you'll see many pieces talking about the present in the photograph and relating it to and contrasting it to the present of the writer and sometimes other moments in the life of the writer. And so what you get is something that is not a static representation of stuff that happened before you have things that are happening now. And of course, because you have the picture in the book, as well as the artistic response to it, the poetic response to it, the reader is invited to look at the picture, have their own present response to it, and then compare it to the poetic response. And it's pretty hard to do that and not creatively respond, even if it's just a card, like, no, that's not what's going on that. So you've already been drawn into this thing in the past to suddenly become part of your present and you're caring about it and you're contrasting your perception and response with that of the person who's written about it. So this process, I think, um, and Howard, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but the idea is that this, as the book goes out in the world and particularly like enters schools, for example, it provides a model for teachers and other people to use to also keep this past present and and authorize, you know, break the museum glass. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's interesting reading the book. Um, you know, not thinking in, in those terms, but but it could feel the um, the the sort of struggle going on with the writers as you were reading that, like sort of forced to write something about maybe a topic that they didn't want to confront, and and that's really the powerful aspect it was really moving to read because of that you could feel like like i don't want to go here but i'm going to go here for the sake of this project and, tim, and so tim, great stuff comes out of that yeah tim when when you bring on uh jeffrey Philp, mm-hmm. remind him of what you just said and let him respond yeah well definitely will let's go let's start reading some poems um alan bass is the first person on the list and alan bass of course has been on the rattlecast before good to see you again alan um good to see you tim yeah um so how have you been I'm well. I'm well. I'm happy to be here with all of you. It's it's wonderful to see some of you who I don't know and then some old friends, or it feels like old friends, even though it's mostly been old friends in little squares on Zoom, (laughs) but it still feels uh, very sweet to be together. Yeah, that is the nature of the world these days. Um, So I put the photograph on the screen right now so people can sort of look at it for a a bit, but you were, um, I I, I assumed that these were assigned, or or did you, I'm not sure, I wasn't clear about that, if you were given this specific photograph to work with, or did you choose this one? They were assigned, and and I was, um, first of all, I was grateful to have something assigned. Uh, One of the things that really worked for me in this project was um howard how definitive you were about what we were supposed to do uh there's a way in which i sometimes like to have no choice um it, 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 it was like this is what we're doing this is how we're doing it and everything was laid out meticulously and i've always found it very hard to write in response to something that I'm asked for. And so I I agreed with some trepidation because I didn't know if I would be able to do something. But I think the clarity helped me. And then the fact that I didn't have to look through many pictures and try and figure out one, I was just given one. And when I looked at it for the first time, I felt very um, fortunate or grateful that I had a, a, a 
kind of a visceral, emotional response right away. I felt like I, I could enter this image. I could think about this image. I could pay attention to it. So uh, I don't know what it would have been like if I had gotten a different image, but I felt like this image was for me. And I, I even before I started to write, I had a kind of whew, feeling like, okay, I, I feel like I have half a chance of being able to do this. Yeah, it, it removes that that paralysis of choice, of you know, problem that you have, where you you know trying to decide which is almost as hard, harder than than oh, deciding yeah. how to write, you know. And so having your, you know, chronicling your response to one image is a great way to put a project together. And I think you can feel that through all the poems. I mean, there is that like, um, you know, I'm forced to engage with this material, and and that really comes out so strongly. And so your your poem is a photograph of Jews probably arriving um, to the Luds ghetto circa 1941-42. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read it? Yeah, thank you. Photograph of Jews probably arriving to the Woods Ghetto circa 1941 to 1942. Why is a horse here alongside the train? Two horses, yoked with leather harnesses, light silvering their flanks in the mist of the Jews descending. Where is the driver taking the cart? loaded with wooden planks. What is in the satchel that weighs down the arm of a woman in a dark coat, her hair parted on the side? A woman I could mistake for my mother in the family album. Only my mother was in Philadelphia selling milk and eggs and penny candy because her mother escaped the pogroms, a small girl in steerage crying for her mother. What are the tight knots of people saying to one another? A star burns the right shoulder blade of each man, each woman. Light strikes each shorn neck and caps each skull. No one is yet stripped of all but a pail or a tin to drink from and piss in. Dread like sun sears the air and breaks over the planes of their faces. Light clatters down upon them like stones, but we can't hear it. Nor can we hear blood thud under their ribs. They will be led into the ghetto and then will be led out to the camps. But for now, the eternal now, the light is silent. Silent the shadows in the folds of their coats. The bones of the horses are almost visible. Their nostrils are deep, soft shadows. And the woman who could be, but is not my mother, still carries her canvas bag and looking closer, what might be a small purse. Yeah, just a brilliant way of bringing out those poignant details in this photograph. Um, how did you, when when people ask me how to go about um, writing an ekphrastic poem, I always say just start describing the photo and then, you know, letting your imagination go from that. You know, the, the, just the act of putting words on paper will often propel you into writing some kind of insight and sort of wading into what your thoughts are about it. Was that the process for you too? Because it feels very organically in that way that you just started writing. And as you were writing more describing the scene, you were more and more engaged with the, the, the people that were forced to live it. 
Yes, I think so. And and the first thing that happened was a question, um, because this this image um, does have you know this horse, these two horses, uh, so prominent, and um, they gave me a kind of entrance. I, I think you know it's obviously full of questions, and they were a kind of way of paying attention, which is I think what all poetry is about at its essence of, of trying to pay attention to what's here. And I, I didn't grow up steeped in the Holocaust, but um, I was born in 1947. So um, I, I couldn't be too far from it. My, my step grandfather, who's the only grandfather that I knew um, lost his first family, his wife and children in the camps my best friend's parents were Holocaust survivors, and she was born in a DP camp in Austria. My parents really shielded us a lot. Uh, it wasn't a, a major theme in our family, but it, it, you couldn't be too far away from it. So, um, and if, and and the story of uh, of my grandmother and my my father was was born in Russia um, and escaped with his family when he was very small so the 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 escaping was a major theme um, in in my family and I think that's you know part of how I thought about so much you know how easily um, that woman could have been my mother Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a powerful poem and, and a great example of, of how to go about writing a poem. So thanks so much for sharing that, Ellen. It's always a pleasure to see you and, and uh, happy to have you on again. Um, Howard and, uh, and Joy, if you want to chi- chime in at any time, uh, feel free to just unmute yourself. Yeah. I'll see you unmuting and then I'll, I'll let you talk. But otherwise, I, we should keep rolling through poems to make sure we have enough. I uh, would like to chime in. Yeah, please do, Howard. Okay, so it took... Uh, uh, myself and um, my co-editor uh, Matthew Silverman about two. This project, uh, the book part of the project, uh, took about six years. And part of that was uh, the interruption of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but uh, it took over a year to select the images from major collections and archives. Uh, we probably went through some twenty thousand or more. Uh, arduous hours uh, in in making the selection. And one of the key things I want to remark on is that we we came to the selection, we had a a whole criteria for for the selection of the images. And and one of them has to do with what in Hebrew is called at, the Hebrew word at, which means sign. And... um, uh, Joy hooked into this with uh, met- uh, metonymy, uh, and uh, the the connection with that, and maybe Joy can a- explain a little more thoroughly about that. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to comment on uh, for your audience is, and, and again, it's another reason why I feel so strongly about not calling this an anthology, the process of selection of the contributors relative to 
the images they were matched with. Uh, we asked each contributor to send in a personal profile, having nothing to do with their academics or uh, their credentials, but uh, their life story, uh, which uh, uh, Ellen Bass so eloquently expressed to you a moment ago. And, and, and then we took that and we put it through, remember, we're, we're all about cognitive science as well as literary arts. And so we put that through what's called a voyant analysis. And it's kind of like a wordle. Oh, wow. That spreads out and shows the emphasis points. And that's how one of the ways in which we were able to so precisely, as uh, Ellen used that word, or you used that word, somebody used that word, we're able to literally match each of the contributors with the image to which, as you so well emphasized, they had to confront. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. That's what I was going to ask, was whether or not the, they were that's just, chosen. That's just or... the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> well, there's so much way into this book. Um, I want to make sure, let's keep going to uh, more poets. Uh, Lois P. Jones is next on the list, another person I am very familiar with. Hey, Lois, how are you? Hey, Tim, it's nice to be on the other side of the microphone. It is, yeah. Lois is the host of Thank a Poets you. Cafe on KPFK. And so, um, you know, it's a, really fun to be on the studio there with her, but it's great to have you on the Rattlecast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you, Howard. Um, it's an honor to be a part of this project. So is there uh, anything really you can uh, add to start with about, about how you came into this anthology? What were your thoughts as you were going in before you even had your image to write about? Were, were you, what were your thoughts about participating in this? Oh, that's a big question. I think everybody is touched by the Holocaust and we don't know how we're going to respond. We don't know. I knew that it had some kind of ekphrastic element um, and so I was very um, touched by the idea that I would see an image and then it was going to trigger something in me and I didn't know what it was going to be. And it could be horrific. It could be anything, you know. So, um, but I knew that there would be some kind of germination from that, also connected with my own history as a Jew and um, my grandmother. Mm-hmm and so on yeah well so i'll put the the or the photograph that you were given on the screen now so everybody at home can see and um so so this for people listening i i forgot i should describe this because uh half the viewers are only listening so this is a photograph of a of a uh, two people a man and a woman um in sort of uh heavy coats um looking at the camera for a portrait and so um what can you tell us about this and, and how you went about writing a poem about it so Ellen mentioned a word which was very important, and I think we've all run into questions, you know, what's happening? Who are these people? How do they relate to the Holocaust? How do they relate to me? And one of the things that I mentioned in my write-up when I wrote to Howard was about my grandmother who came from Romania. I didn't. I only knew mostly the joyful side of her, uh, her cooking, her sewing, her accordion playing, you know, everything she imbued into the family. Uh, it was later after she died, uh, I was a teenager and much later when I started to investigate into her past and learned of the pogroms in Romania and how they fled in the early part of the um, century in 19, 1900s. 
And so uh, what was it? It was question. Um, here are two people. I want to interview them. I want to talk to them. I can't, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to I wanted to talk to my grandmother, I wanted to ask her questions, but I couldn't. So that was part of what went into it. And then I, and then without question, you know, so so that there came the title and also this idea of what does it mean to have a question and and do we need an answer? And what are those answers actually about what happened? Uh, so that's what it is. Shall yeah. I start to read it? Yeah, and I should say the poem too was um, uh, Leah Hammerstein, Silverstein, and Simcha Rodham, January 1945. So we can we can share that part of the photograph too. Um, but let's hear it without question. Go ahead. Sure. And just to mention that Simcha Rodham is the person I've focused on. And um, he was one of the um, people involved in the resistance in the ghetto. And the quote, which starts, um, if you could lick my heart, it would poison you, is actually um, not from him, but from Yitzhak Zuckerman. Um, so I found that those that quote was uh, conflated. Without question. Let me just drag this over here so that I can see it properly. No problem. No one can take away that summer at 16 when the grass in the meadow was so tall you disappeared between its walls. Nothing above but the clouds, flush as a rabbi's eyebrow, drifting in imaginary lands. It was easy to dream at the sun drowsy the landscape until it was time to bring the cows home. The taste of their milk, clover, iris, the red palms of the corn poppies opening wide. You could have lived on the back of that twilight, watching the wind soft the trees. But when you closed your eyes, you saw the wild-eyed animal trapped beneath the cat knife. You smelled the musty vaults of hunger. Aryan fair, no one believed you were one of us. At the ghetto's gate, you begged them, speaking Yiddish and muttering prayers until they let you in. By then, the currency of a quarter million humans had been crushed, the largest bones ground to a fine powder and stirred in the Vistula River. When you entered the ghost town, feathers flew in the wind, Bits of rag remained in empty rooms. No one could know when you inched along the ashes, the smoke burning your nostrils with its oblivion, just how the light staggered you among the ruins. You crept near the corpses, dear to you. Imagined waiting for dawn and the cold end of a bullet. You might be the last Jew in the ghetto. You might follow the woman's voice that called to you, but disappeared from the rubble every time you got near. When you finally built enough forces to rescue the rebels, you made your way through the sewers, sometimes waist high, sometimes you crawled on your stomach through shit and tears. You saved as many as you could. 
drove them to the singing green of the, of the Lomianki forest. I do not have questions for you. The solution is hidden in the secrets of the grass, vaulted like weed through the bodies where land broke open its flesh. Because a photograph remembers the shadow above the temple, will catch the swell of lights that rise off the ground in the graveyard. It will dig up the silence your brothers gave you, will hold the gunshots and barking dogs and the branches of unwilling trees. Memory shudders by like a passing train. The good will not turn away. Some nocturne seeps out from the flames and calls you back. And that was Lois P. Jones reading Without Question. Again, we're reading poems from um, uh, this book, New Voices, Contemporary Writers Confronting the Holocaust. Lois, thanks so much for sharing that. You could feel... Um, the uh, that the intimacy that develops, um, you know, when you have to really really contemplate people in a photograph is like human beings. I mean, a lot of us have probably been to Holocaust museums and walked through looking and having that sort of feeling, um, but then having to really sit down and focus and think about the the actual people that were there and and, and having so much time on one person or one one pair of people or group of people. Um, really powerful things come out of that that connection, the intimacy there of, of confronting um, people who are sort of frozen in time in these photographs. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that, and let's uh, let's keep moving because um, uh, we want to get through all these poems, of course. And um, Alejandro, oh no, Joseph, uh, Jeffrey Philip is next, and I should say as we um, go through here that that all the contributors here are contributors to Rattle, um, and probably in the anthology, about half of the people in the table of contents as I was slipping through have contributed to Rattle in the past. So it's a wonderful um, anthology in that regard. So many great poets um, involved in it. Uh, Jeffrey, are you here? Do you want to come on and share your poem? How are you? I'm good. It's great to see you, Jeffrey. <laughs> good to be back. Um, so this the poem is called Flying African. Jesse, I can hardly imagine the weight on your shoulders as you filed through the stadium with flags flapping in the wind, nervous soldiers marching behind to protect you from crowds of young girls screaming, Voist Jesse, while up in the stands, the Führer received adulation from his adoring audience, then sat and joked with his captains about the superior genes of their athletes, crouched in the shadow of a fence where starved faces would peer through barbed wire. But on that day, you exposed the lie that had stalked you through segregated hotels and restrooms with signs that read whites only and ran as if you were striding the air away from their hate, like your father did when he left the South, away from the flaming crosses and hooded clansmen, following his dream of freedom, like in the story of our ancestors, which was passed from mouth to hand in barbershops, soup kitchens, stoops in Harlem, about the flying Africans, tired of scars, whips, chains, the masses thunder, who stomp their feet 
raised their hands above their heads and sang, Today, today we're going home to Mount Zion. Mm. Yeah, I agree for those flying African. And uh, the photo for uh, for those just listening, uh, which everybody can see on screen who's watching on video, is uh, Jesse Owens, of course, um, and other people running in the uh, 19... The 1936 Olympics in Berlin, and so uh, there's the photo of Jeffrey Owens. So, so Jeffrey, how did you um, um, encounter this photograph? What was it that, that you? What was your reaction, and what did you think about being forced to write about this this photograph? Ah, <laughs> uh, I hated it. <laughs> uh, I, 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 in fact, uh, wrote another poem, and I said, Howard, here, take this one, and he was like, No. You're going to write about this one. Oh, wow. And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, so I, I, I started to write the, the, the poem, and uh, I, I remembered um, Toni Morrison's book. And, and somewhere between Toni Morrison and, uh, and uh, I mean, I'm here in Miami. And, you know, uh, especially when I just came to Miami, I spent most of my time on Miami Beach. So there were still Holocaust survivors uh, alive and present. And and many, uh, you know, my friends call me Jew adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were so many of my friends who, uh, who, who were Jewish, still are. And, and so it was always this, 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 this feeling of being so close, but not so close. And then I took a DNA test and found out I was a Sephardic Jew and blah, 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 oh, blah, really? blah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, so, so yeah, it, it, it was just, it, it was just a whole, um, coming together of, of, of so many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and thank God Howard did not give up. Uh, so what was it? What was it about this photograph that made you not think you could write a poem about it? Ah, it was Jesse Owens, and I, you know, it was. It, 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 there was so much also that I didn't know, so I had to do a lot of research mm-hmm. into Jesse Owens. So you know, it's like half of the stuff is, you know, nine tenths of the stuff is left on the cutting floor. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, so so I did a full research on on Jesse Owens, and and then selected the parts that seemed to fit into, Be, uh, and it really started as as you were sort of hinting at the weight, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. way, like I am now forced to do this. Mm-hmm. So so, but but it's it's a sort of counteractive like. Yeah, I'm feeling this weight, this pressure, but man, Jesse. Yeah. Oof. What you had to go through, you know, to 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 to, to run that race, knowing that the fate of all black people, uh, you were carrying that weight on your shoulders and you ran it in record time. Yeah. Uh that was that was just an amazing feat. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if uh, if Howard wants to chime in and say so, but I'm sure that's part one of the, the aims of this project is that um, uh, you know forcing people to do research too is part of the confronting it, right, Howard? Absolutely, uh, you're getting to the layers of uh, our intentions 
some of which may may be le- uh, latent but yet very significant. And that's why we see this book in uh, as unconventional as it was in developing, also unconventional in terms of what we intend for it out in the world. We see this as a text. We see this as a catalyst uh, for uh, artistic endeavor. And we're trying to show a ways and a means uh, through to accomplish that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, we're getting at the reason why, um, you know, it's not an anthology, because the process is just as important as the compilation. Um, but let's keep moving with the poems. And um, Alejandro Escudé is up next, another another person who has uh, been on the Rattlecast uh, many times and including a featured episode. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm great. So uh, what do you have to say about the poem? I'll, I'll pull up the poem or the photo that you wrote a poem after, but but what can you tell us about it as I, as I dig it up? Well, it's been a while for me and, and a lot happened in uh, personal issues in my life in the last year. So I, I had to sort of go, go back and dig it, dig up, a, you know, a lot of the things I was thinking. Um, but I didn't hesitate in responding because, you know, I, I actually immigrated from Argentina and, and the photo had immigrants. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, you know, that's just together with tragedy is just so touching. It seems that we're always in, involved in some kind of bureaucratic process when there's horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a bureaucracy with horror. Um, and it goes hand in hand. And I, I, I remember thinking that. And I wanted to sort of capture what that was like because I, I in a way, I experienced it. Yeah, this is, I'll describe for everybody uh, just listening, this is a German Jews at Palestine Immigration Office 1935. After World War I, the name Palestine Offices was applied to Zionist consulates in the diaspora countries charged with the organization, regulation, and impl- implementation of Jewish immigration to Palestine. And the, and the photo is a very crowded um, room. I, I don't know how many people are in this small room, but maybe 50 or something, crowded around a desk where a few people are, um, you know, bureaucratically signing forms and, and filling out paperwork that they have to do when so much is going on, so much chaos around them. So a very fascinating photograph. Uh, you want to go ahead and read the poem, Alex? Sure. This is uh, Midnight Cake. It could be any bureaucratic sun, the orbiting planets, offices. There is a hatted woman turned, an older man turned, summer smiling as if sanity were in the breadcrumbs for the pigeons. A balding man leans into a document, his face too close to the sheet, the pen too close to his chin. Is he doodling a fly into the paper? Does he know the fly is a child suffocating in the arms of his grandfather? From afar, the photograph could be a clump of scattered leaves. The faces like pale bark. No spaces between the bodies. Even the building is circumspect. That is what a dictator does to the gravity of meaning. Black, white, black, white. How history comes to us in photographs. As if they were simpler times. But everything has always been takeover booming militant voices everywhere the the promise of patriotism and the slow aching candles of religion is the ceiling light on in the corner of the photo that guernica lamp that tie and that tie and that tie 
Coffin bodies, David's stars pinned to thin chests. Oh, how the dust is always silent, especially in the hollowed places. Wake up, we wish to shout. Put down the paperwork and run. There is a radio on God's bedside streaming Goodman's Darn That Dream. The clarinet transforms itself from instrument to machine gun and back again. You have found yourself mute and madly in love. Suddenly a horse, a horse-drawn carriage, an infant eaten by the clamping bomb jaws of a booted giant. Couldn't the radio have taught you about the species of lies? Couldn't the radio have swallowed the swastika flies? No, you were on your own. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the anti-Semitic brute and his orchestra, the racist nincompoops straight from the netted heart of hell. Do you hear its beat? Can you hear it? Clear as a bell? There are Fridays flopping like dying fish in the drawers of the Palestinian immigration office. Government fishes, each in their own plot. The truth like a slice of midnight cake to choke the strange, ambitious corporal who strides toward a nuclear family with a hound and forces each one down to the frozen ground to be searched again and again. Yeah, powerful poem, Midnight Cake by Alejandro Escudet. Thanks, as always, for sharing that, Alex. Always great to read your poems, and, and thanks for being able to join us today. Thank you. Yeah, um, let's keep uh, going with the poems, but I should say that um, if anybody has any questions for uh, Howard Debs, um, please leave them in the chat windows, and I will pass any along maybe toward the end of the show once we get to the remaining poems that we have. Um, next in line was um, Andrew McFadden Ketchum, who um, hasn't been in Rattle yet, but has a poem forthcoming, which I'm happy to say. Um, hey, Andrew, it's nice to meet you. Oh, you're still on mute. Hang on one second. There you go. Uh, I, I did it. <laughs> I think everybody else managed not to do that. I did it. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, it's good to have you here, though. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so should I go into the poem? or what, Yeah, how, the, yeah. What? Well, uh, why don't you I'll pull up the poem for everybody to take a look at. And so this is for the photo for everybody to take a look at. This is uh, the, the photo that you were assigned um, to write about. And this is... Um, um, What's it? Reichsfeer SS Henrik Hemmler smokes a cigar outside on the grass with um, Reinhard Hedrick and two other officers during a trip to Estonia in 1941. And so, um, you know, it's military officers, uh, Germans laying in the grass, sort of looking at something, but who knows what. So, so what was your reaction to this poem and, and how did you go about forming a response to confronting it? Well, it's a really interesting story. So, I was supposed to be doing like a different image, a different section, I think section four. And then John Tribble um, emailed Howard and said, you know, I'm really sick and I I just can't commit to this. And I don't know how, I guess Howard knew that I was one of John's friends, students from the past. And so they sent it to me um, and that it became mine. Um, and of course, John died um, a few years later. Um, uh, very sad. It's, we we all miss him. Um, but so yeah. So so it sort of, I went from one subject which I felt was a little easier to a really really hard one, which was you know of course the sort of violent part. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and you know i struggled with it um i all i really remember is being like i i'm saying yes to help out john and to help out the project but and i'm really relieved that everybody else sort of had a similar difficulty with this because i i kind of felt like i was the only one but that's kind of a dumb thing to think thinking about it you know i just i didn't realize it was hard on everybody so this is it's nice to hear that from everyone and um then one day i woke up and there it was and it's when i finished it it scared me and disturbed me mm. um it's also nice to hear that everybody else sort of had that had that experience so um yeah and the, and the poem uh, the photograph focuses on um you know it's everybody sitting around looking at whatever is off camera but then himmler does have a cigar and so that's the the item that you focused on it is yeah. dead center in the image but it's sort of i didn't notice it at first too until i saw the title um right and, and so that's the thing that that pulled you into the poem yeah um i don't know why it just did um you know and the metaphor that followed is pretty obvious um so i'll just go ahead and read the poem yeah go ahead the cigar burning in himmler's hand take this cigar himmler said holding it up to the light it too began its life as a seed cradled in the arms of its mother from her arms, it was plucked and stored until it was its time to be planted and rose in the earth with its brothers. Then time, our turning world, warmth, water, the necessary nutrients, and for reasons our science still cannot discern, it sprouted wings that lifted it out of the dark where it burst into light. There, again amongst its brothers, it was hammered into greater being by the elements until it was severed at the base and hung and rose above a fire that cured it of its blight. And what was once nothing but a seed was harvested in bundles and transported by train to the markets where it was bargained over and inspected, turned this way and that in the hands of men until agreements were reached and a vast and important network of paperwork was authored and dated and signed and the leaves that once were seeds were again transported by train to the rollers where it was sliced by knives called charitas with its brothers into strips that were stirred together like ingredients in a cauldron and rolled by hand in amarillo leaves just another type of seed nourished for just another purpose until we have at last he said this cigar for my pleasure you see, Himmler said, Ein Heydrich, the two young officers, the waters of the Baltic, the grass waving on the hillsides, the cornflowers, the rooks ratcheting in the trees, the sky that, when dark rises, awakens with stars. Then he returned his attentions to the cigar, brought it to his lips, and brought it to flame. Transformation, he said, then puffed once, twice, and regarded the smoke. This is the business we're in, my friends. Only this. Yeah, another great, uh, disturbing poem, like you said. Uh, the cigar burning in Himmler's hand. And you can see the whole poem, you know, the whole project, too, play out in this poem, once again, where, you know, it's, it's a journey as much as it is a poem, you know, because you start out, you know, contemplating this image, finding a detail that stands out, and then researching that and what might have been going on and all the things surrounding it. And so, so can you... Speak at all to that that journey aspect of it. Do you feel, how do you feel changed having having gone through this project? Well, you know, at the time I was in um, 
I was in this cabin that I would stay in in Indiana in the middle of nowhere. Like there was there's nothing around uh but you know corn. <laughs> That's why I was there to be only amongst corn and my um future wife came to visit me and I'm I'm fairly certain that she at that point was educating me about indigenous history. She's Indy, her kids are Indy and Anupiak and my kids now were married and I'm stepdad. And Hitler um I don't know exactly how to phrase this. She'd be much better at this. But so Hitler sort of read about the Holocaust of indigenous peoples here and the very concept of it. And then the way it was done, he modeled much of what he did in Germany and Europe uh, off of off of that. And so I think what happened was that she was educating me about this. I'm sure I was telling her about this project. Right. And, you know, it all sort of merged in my head. And then there's also that like, y'all would do so much better a job of explaining this part of it, but like the, the, the sort of Nazi, like um, mystical nonsense thing that they mm -hmm. were into. Now that's in the poem as well, that it's all about transformation and it's okay what we're doing because we're transforming these people into something better or what, what, you know, and of course that's what we thought here, the colonists thought here when they were um, making their way through North America. Um, so, um, yeah, as you know, as a as a as a white man who who's not Jewish has no, you know, I don't I don't I mean I have some Jewish friends, but not a whole lot of a connection. Um I'm I don't, you know, I've been educated about the Holocaust my entire life, but those connections for them to be made and for the book to to help me make those connections, um <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like you know, thanks a lot, Howard. You know, like I, I feel really great about that, you know, like to to sort of understand that history, but of course it's important to understand it. Um and so, yeah, you know, to for this book to be coming out and to look at these poems so many years later, it's it's pretty astonishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Howard, I was wondering if you could jump on and just explain why what your thought process was in um, including non-Jewish writers. You know, it would have been very obvious to have um, an entire book composed of people who were, you know, third generation people from from Germany or something like that. Um, why include people who are not are not Jewish and not Holocaust survivors and don't have connections to it? Because the book could never succeed if that were the case. Anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. Hmm. And until we understand that fully, we're not going to make progress in a lot of ways. Our uh, project, uh, uh, one of our project advisors, Paul Vincent, who's Professor Emeritus of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College, and a contributor and advisor to the overall project, uh, once said, I fear that humanity's inability to acknowledge itself as a single species will only get worse. And we've taken up that uh, to uh, try to do our little bit, uh, the butterfly effect, if you will, uh, to uh, cause his fear to be mitigated. Yeah, yeah excellent response. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. Um, ne next poet up we have is uh, Lauren Camp. We have two, two left. Uh, Lauren, are you ready? I am ready. Hi, Tim. Yeah, hi. It's great to see you again. So um, what can you say about the uh, the photo that you were given? And I'll, I'll pull it up on screen for everybody at home as you were uh, as you're explaining. I think I want to piggyback off. I mean, first of all, I want to say it's been really fascinating to listen to everybody and hear their experiences with 
the photos and just the process of writing. Um, I want to piggyback off something Andrew said, because I had, I think, an opposite response in a way. I had a lot of schooling in the Holocaust as a as a young girl coming through um, Hebrew school and um, Jewish studies. And I would not have been able to participate in this project if I were given those um, those images that Joy had been talking about, the ones that of of the concentration camps, of the bodies, of the of the starving people piled on pots and on top of each other and in in mouse graves, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And so the image that I got while being somewhat mystifying was also um, gave me a way to come at it from the humane angle Hmm. of of its uh, Muslim rescuers in Sarajevo. And it's a street scene. It's two veiled women and then other people um, children and other people and other things going on around them. So there was space for me to to get into it and also to look through, not through my eyes at the photo um, as Ellen did, but through their eyes out at the street. And that was really intriguing to me. Hmm. Yeah, really well said. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read it? Street Inventory by Lauren Camp. Okay. Street Inventory. We see for you imagined pigeons, everyday albus and thick oaks, children, their purpose to giggle and leap. People talk as shadow and we see blooms. We take time to cross the bridge. We do it for you. Our veils leading us, the click of our shoes placed then lifted. While we walk in light and return in light, we see for you the shape of the light so we can explain its tremble, remind how it switches. We walk past tired women in a storefront. They knead and bruise small lumps of dough, allow the bread to soft or crisp, a bounty. We smell the yeast for you. What we don't see, we stumble through. Around the corner, the city will fall asleep in the long cloth of night. We won't see those minutes like knives. At dusk, a lessening. At our door, we move inside to you. The street is how we go. And we enter and hang up the shape of north, the smell of autumn. Tuning the radio through its bumps, we hear, and you hear, the outrage. It spreads. So we repeat where we went if you want us to repeat it. We see for you the pleasure of distance. Houses. What is unwavering? Here is the wind. An hour with air. What landscape is? Touch it. We brought it for you. Yeah, another wonderful poem. That was um, Street Inventory by Lauren Camp. And I was wondering, Lauren, if, if you could talk about I think the poem is made so much more powerful by the use of the we in the poem. Um, is that something that I, I was wondering if people would, 
feel, you know, have the courage to do that, to bring in, you know, from speaking from their perspective um, of the people in the photograph. Was there something that you um, thought about at all or is that just how the poem came out? I think it's how the poem came out. I mean, it was, I had these two women that are standing apart, but, um, but still that sort of shared experience of going out and having, having to notice everything to bring back to people who are, um, who, who are basically not able, what I imagine, not able to come out of their house, not able to see the light, not able to know any sort of goings on. So both of these uh, sister and sister-in-law um, needing to go out and pay attention to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really well said and a really powerful poem. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, Lauren Camp once again. And then the last part, I think um, Julia Dasbach-Kolchinski said she probably couldn't make it, but we left her on the list just in case. I don't think she's going to. Um, but we have um, Jacqueline Oshiro, too. So, hi, Jacqueline. How are you? Oh, I think you're on mute. I'm well, okay, thanks. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, it's my, usually I do unmute requests. I'm just juggling so many things today that I keep forgetting. Um, so so what can you tell us about your image? I'll put it up on screen like I have for everybody else, you know, watching on YouTube and things. But um, but what were you, what were you, what was your first thought? You know, I, I was wondering about like the the idea that this was coming in the, in the mail, I assume, or maybe it was over email and you would know, um, know, um, you know, that you had to write a poem about this, but that you hadn't seen it yet. So, so what were your thoughts, your first reactions to this photograph as I, as I pull it up? Well, you know, the fact that it was taken by the SS and that's not surprising when you look at it because you don't see anyone's face Hmm. as if they're not, you know, individual people. Right. So that, that's what sort of determined what I was going to do in my home. Yeah, and so I have the the image here, um, right here. And um, so this is a photo. um, This is um, Jewish women and children who have been selected for death walk in a line toward the gas chambers, Auschwitz 1944. So one of the most somber, um, I mean, of all the the poems in the book, I mean, this is one of the most um, striking, perhaps, you know, seeing people wait in line as if it's a queue for for any other thing that we'd be queuing up for, but but knowing what it's a queue for is a really powerful thing to to think about, and and maybe that you don't realize um, what you're looking at until you read the description, right? Yeah. Well, you see the chimneys. I think that's what gives it away. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Here, let me put the. Uh, yeah, you see these here. Yeah. And so in a photo taken um, by the SS, too. So do you want to go ahead and read that? um, SS photo, Auschwitz, 1944, is the poem. SS photo, Auschwitz, 1944. Their backs are turned. We see no face. Unless you count the blurry one in profile. Their children, too, just bundles, anonymous. I'd no doubt find my double, shadowed eyes, beak, nose, high forehead, too gummy smile, if their backs weren't turned. We see no face, just coats and headscarves. But for the chimneys, these might be any women facing exile with their children and bundles, anonymous. Today's have deserts, oceans, mountains to cross. They, too, find soldiers' guns. They, too, stumble while we, our backs turned, don't quite face our part in this. We're charmed. 
we stay in place, or if we so choose, travel at will with our children, bundles. But who's anonymous? We have our own borders and deportees, and probably right now, our own official pulling children from their parents. He's our face, even with his back turned, anonymous. Yeah, and that is uh, SS Photo Auschwitz 1944 by Jacqueline Oshiro. And Jacqueline, so you... or, or last because you were on a plane and had a rush to get here. Um, and so I'm so glad you did. Can you explain why, um, you know, being here tonight is so important to you and why you know, being a part of this anthology is so important? Well, you know, I mean, obviously what I was trying to do and what I think is terrifically important is to make that connection. Other people spoke about mm-hmm. horrible things happen. They have to stop happening. You know, just, you know, of course, it is, I think, important in its own terms to remember what happened. But I think connecting it to what's going on now is crucial. You know, we're doing terrible things. We have to stop doing terrible things. So it's imperative to try to do what one can. <laughs> so Yeah, well, I'm so glad you, get, you did. And so glad you could be here tonight to share that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so that is it for the poems, and, and there's so much um, of a response on um, on the chats. If everybody, you know, you're you're watching on the Zoom, but you can see all the the people who love um, these poems uh, go by on Facebook and YouTube. Um, so thanks everybody for sharing those poems, Howard. I have a couple questions I wanted to ask. Um, I, I sure. sort of caught them as they were going by. Um, someone asked um, if um, were were the the writers provided any context for the poems, uh, or did they have to do that research for themselves? Uh, were, were the descriptions of the photos, or was it something they would have to find and, and dig up? Yes, and yes. Mm-hmm. The the research was built in to our presumptions as editors, uh, and it is one of the rationales for selecting the contributors that that would occur. On the other hand, we provided uh, to each contributor a contributor kit. And um, it was comprehensive. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, well, yeah, really interesting how much went into this project. And you can see by, by how powerful the results are. So it's, it must feel great to have you know, this you had in mind for a long time and so much has gone into it, finally come out um, just, just now and, and be put together in one single collection, right? I would say to you that this is just the first step of uh, a long road we've uh, decided to take. Uh, to confront the past for the sake of the future. Timothy Schneider, the historian, uh, wrote, uh, by overlooking the lessons of the Holocaust, we have misunderstood modernity and endangered the future. Uh, so we're taking up the cause. Hmm. Yeah, a good point of view. And and that's um, sort of ties in, I think, maybe to another question I wrote down, which I think this was from Robbie, Robbie Nestor. And she just asked simply, why now? Uh, why now, and, and is, is this the time for it, and not, you know, 10 years ago or something like that? Well, that that reminds me of uh, one of our sages in Judaism, uh, Rabbi Akiba, uh, who said, uh, if not now, when? Hmm. Yeah. 
I'll uh, leave it at that. Okay. And then, uh, and last thing. So you mentioned that there's so much more going on. Before we go, can you explain, you know, all the other things that uh, New Voices is doing? Thank you. Uh, again, I'll refer your uh, rattlecasters. Is that what you call them, rattlecasters? Oh, I don't know, viewers. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> uh, rattlers. Call, that's a good one. I'll call. Oh, rattlers. I like yeah, rattlers. Okay. Uh, I'll refer them again to our uh, organizational website, newvoicesproject.org, and uh, a lot of uh, their questions will be answered in that regard. But basically, our focus is on um, a a series of activities, uh, the major one of which will be an outreach to uh, post-secondary students uh, on college campuses throughout the U.S. and eventually abroad uh, with a half-day total immersion informal learning experience, uh, which starts out with uh, uh, VR uh, headsets and uh, all of those goodies. Hmm. Uh, and so w- we're trying to connect, if you will, with the Gen Z uh, for what may be obvious reasons. Yeah, for sure. And and for anybody watching who wants to get involved, I assume there are ways to do so at the website. Um, is that what there you, are? Is there, is there something you know, monetary donations, um, other ways they can get involved there? All of the above. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, Howard, thanks so much for sharing this book with me. It's just great to be able to explore it and uh, and have so many poets on reading their amazing, moving poems. It was a really profound profound experience uh reading them i would i would be remiss if i didn't say that you nailed the date of this episode may 1 is the first day of the uh, uh, jewish american heritage month proclaimed uh by our president in fact Mm -hmm. uh and we have been uh, the new voices project has been selected as a cultural partner in that endeavor and uh, it was certainly prescient of you to find that date in your calendar, and we can't thank you enough. Yeah, well, it's definitely my pleasure. And I just love the way that this is more than a book, and it's a whole project and, and a whole you know way of producing poems and engaging with the world through poetry, which is what Rattle's always about. So thanks, Howard. As always, it's been great, great to talk to you, and great to talk to everybody else who shared poems. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now we're going to go to open lines um, and how that works. It's just a regular episode, even though there's so many contributors here. So if you would like to go to open lines, and uh, and everybody on the Zoom, I should say, you don't have to stick around. Of course, you can watch the rest on, on YouTube um, or Facebook or the podcast version if you want to, if you're interested in open lines. Uh, we're going to do about an hour of that. And how that works, I'll share it with everybody. Um, first, email your poems to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. Um, and then I can show them on the screen like I was showing poems from the book and from Poets Respond earlier. And then I'm going to share this Zoom link where everyone's been hanging out. Um, I'll put it in the chat windows, both on Facebook and YouTube. So only if you want to come to share poems, uh, you can uh, pop on the Zoom. If you'd just like to sit and watch poetry um, and enjoy all the things people have to share, then sit tight right where you are and uh and watch because it's the stream keeps going on facebook and youtube but if you'd like to share poems um one poem each they can be uh current event poems they can be poems about uh responding to the holocaust if you have those they can be poems you published recently they can be poems you wrote today anything you want to share feel free to share on the open lines and i'll be right back with more poetry
And we're back. Thanks so much for sticking around. As always, we have open lines, and we uh, have a prompt. The prompt for this week um, was to... I'm right about something you will never do. And I've gotten in a really bad habit lately of um, writing poems like with no, like literally like five minutes to go. So I thought I would write one of my train poems, which is where I just kind of like start typing and don't let myself stop until I get to some kind of conclusion. And then and, and I try not to punctuate them and, and let them flow freely out. And uh, having no idea where I'm going, like some kind of train rushing out of a tunnel or a railroad crossing or something. I don't know. And so I, this was even short for one of those. But, um, but here you go. This is my writing about something you will never do. Never Will I Ever is the title, which I think is some, isn't that a child, a kid's game? I, that, that phrase stuck in me uh, for some reason. I think it's something people say. Never Will I Ever. Never will I ever, I'll never pace the aisle of a grocery store at 1 a.m. wondering about the right ice cream, never live in a tiny house across the lawn from another tiny house gazing out from a tiny window as the porch light shuts off, never drive a motorcycle, never cling to a cliff free solo, never jump out of a perfectly good airplane, no parachute packed by hand, never wander through the land, never drive for hours in silence, never talk the smallest talk, never forget I shouldn't sing, never be unafraid, anything, never lie in a hammock waiting for the meteor, never wonder if there might be more there's more so that was my little train poem never will i ever and um let's go now to see what you have to share um trying to uh see what we got carla schwartz is up first hey carla how you doing so i actually had three poems curated this month Excellent. For, Congratulations. Um, thank you for using the word curated so casually yeah. <laughs> i like hearing that and I, i'm not even good about doing that so i really appreciate oh, okay. it carla first virtual and so i sent you a link because one of the po- three poems is holocaust remembrance day oh that's which perfect. is mm-hmm. um not quite about never doing something but it is about something that when i was younger was never done Okay. And it was something that Ellen Bass actually referred to about her growing up, too. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, So it's called Holocaust Remembrance Day. Someone mentions Remembrance Day, and I can't help wonder why no one, none of us, so many children of survivors spoke of this back in high school. My mother, who wanted to know in detail for each friend I spent time with, last names, parents' income, employment, what time I'd be home. My mother who made it off the last boat to Cuba, my mother who shared a secret language with my grandmother, my mother who didn't want me to know what she had seen as a young girl but never understood. 30 years later on Facebook, I learned we were many each of us with our own survivor's family secret, each with a parent unsettled by a knock on the door. The children, friends I swam with, had kept only to the surface. Oh, yeah, very powerful and fitting, of course, for the subject today, um, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And yeah, it's, there's so many things that we don't speak about when we're you're young. Our family just doesn't you know talk about it, and, and then it comes to us later. So, so really interesting to share that. Um, you know, I think maybe we have, um, we have, uh, you know, eight people on the call. I think we have time for two if they're short. Let's do a two if they're short day. Uh, so do you want to do another one of these three, um, Carla? Yes, but I have to find it now because I just, <laughs> I just Oops. hit it for a second. So 
uh, let me just um, let me just go here and go here and um, okay, all right, it should be there. Okay, so let's do uh, watermelon um, because the other one was a prompt poem from here actually. Oh, but I, okay. So so it's called watermelon. And what was the prompt? Do you remember? Uh, so actually the the first poem is the prompt poem and i'm not oh, going to read that one okay, okay. well i really can go uh, find that verse first right show. yeah exactly right, good, right, good teaser right <laughs> yeah so and i'll put the link in after um but um this is called watermelon and actually if you thought about the body poem of prompt from julia's reading it's sort of like that in some sense even though this wasn't that prompt watermelon you always loved watermelon the gray-pink flesh, the juice that runs down your lips as you bite in. Your heart, big as a watermelon, big as the tractor that pulls the melons off the vines, big as the whole field of watermelons. At the melon umbilical, the embarrassed underside, a snail forms, pale yellow from crusty scale where the melon blanched under the soil as it grew, while the rest of the skin, veined like a parasol, sums green at the nib, belted in deeper green, like that skirt that was your photographic signature. The melon having lain in the full glory of sun, clown pant stripes around the body, its varicose mappings of brown tributaries. Six eddies of pale seeds, the color of pill bugs, divide the flesh. You taught me to chew the seeds instead of spitting, soft nuts easy to swallow. In that skirt, your belly would bulge at the waistband until it didn't fit, until it did again, but then you swam in it. That final year, you shriveled into yourself. The flesh paled and papery, teeth blanched gray, refusing to chew or spit Jaws clenched in fear of missing your precious son. Yeah, excellent. That was Watermelon uh, by Carla Schwartz. Thanks so much, Carla, for sharing both those poems from Verse Virtual. Um, always a pleasure. Thank yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there are two from uh, Verse Virtual. That's verse-virtual.org. So do check that out. It's another great website for sharing poems. We have a few more people clambering in. Um, let's go next to uh, Katie Dozier. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great show. I enjoyed Carla's poem just now, too, a lot. And it kind of ties in with mine. So it's interesting. We both went in a fruit direction. Interesting. And you have a, a, a book to promote that just came out last uh, yesterday, right? So I want to make sure we mention that. All right. I'll figure out how to promote the book right now because I don't really know how to do that. So I, yes, I have a book. It's called Watering Can and it is an NFT. And I'm calling it a collectible chapbook because I think that that really sums up what it is nicely. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know, is there anything you can say about why a collectible chapbook, you know, on the blockchain instead of, um, instead of, or maybe before um, publishing it in print? Well, I think of poems as being actual art. And I know it's a little bit controversial. NFTs can be <laughs> this part. But I think of it as a whole new way to present poems that we haven't had the ability to do before. And I think it's really revolutionizing poetry. So I'm pretty passionate about it. <laughs> oh, very cool. And these were all poems uh, written in the month of April for National Poetry Month, right? 
They were. And the, the thing is, though, now April's over, but the habit is still there. So I like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to stop, Tim. I'm yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think you can. Like... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the first day that you don't do it, it's going to be like an emotional, uh, especially if you, you missed your chance for not, for, you know, if you didn't do one May 1st, you'd, you'd sort of cut off okay, but now it's like, no, yeah. I continued, you know, I continued. That's the, uh, I knew I would too, to be honest. It's just like, I write usually at least a few poems a day. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it was just like trying to pick like the one that was the most reasonable <laughs> every day. Well, uh, but, both of these are short. So why don't you go ahead and uh, you can do both. Um, all right. That you sent. Yeah. I'll start then with the one that's, I don't think you're supposed to read the title poem from your book, but you know, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> so, but that's the one I'm going to read because I think it's the most appropriate. And then I'll read the prompt poem after. Okay. So this is called Watering Can. I comb this garden for tomatoes that catch me like a butterfly in a child's net. How could anything be quite so red, so full of juice? From one bite, I remember all the fruit. How I ate every pineapple in a bid to ripen to make my late babies come. And when I was so done, paid for fruit pre-sliced, need in boxes, yellow sun, as if life would always be so nice. Today, our old tuxedo cat died, but chirps spring out in the backyard. My little girl stings to the succulents, watering them from a can, a softer pour than ever before. Now she understands. Yeah, great. That was watering him. The title poem from that new uh, chat book. And um, the next one is the prompt poem. So uh, what was the prompt again? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, oh, you never do again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I never do. I hope that's what it was, because that's the poem I have in front of me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this is technically a sonnet. It's like the skinniest sonnet ever. I think some may say I just stretched it into 14 lines to be able to say it was a sonnet, but nobody will tell me that to my face. So oh, we'll no, just probably, not. That. probably not. Probably <laughs> not. Okay. All right. Never again will I wake up wondering why. What is it all for? Look how you conjure bluebells to line my eyes and write my irises iambic. Count my stresses one by one as I learn to hold the sun. Rhyme at the end there. Kay Ryan would be happy with that little skinny sonnet. Thanks for sharing that, Katie. (laughs) And I should say, uh, Katie and I do uh, the poetry space. I co-host that with her on Twitter on Thursdays at 3 p.m. Just sit around for an hour talking poetry. This week we're talking about... um, uh, plating poems, uh, which is how, how you would present a poem on the page and how that affects your reading of it. So that should be an interesting topic. Uh, and a food metaphor, you having some food background, right? Yeah, I feel like it's kind of a shame we can't then present a meal to everybody on the space, but I don't think we're going to be able to arrange that uh, by Thursday. Yeah, well, that technology is coming anyway, maybe at some point. <laughs> but that is uh, Katie underscore Dozier on Twitter if you want to find that. That is a Twitter space where you can sort of sit around and just talk on a, you know, around on a, on a audio. It's really fun. So see you then, Katie. Have a great uh, time in the meantime. I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank okay, you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, it was Katie Dozier with two poems, uh, Never Again Will I Wake Up and Watering Can. And next up, let's go to Dick Westheimer, also a uh, regular contributor on the Poetry Space. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Oh, great. And I recommend the Poetry Space to anybody who wants different voices than you hear here and just wonderful conversation. It's really great. Yeah, it's really fun just to chat you know, about a certain topic and, and see what comes up and what poems people think about and, and all sorts of stuff. It's a, I love the casualness of it. It is fun. Yeah, it's terrific. Um so I have I have two poets respond poems, but I th- well, if if there's only time for one, I'll read my um, 
returning to Auschwitz, cell block number eight well, again. How, how long are they, Dick? Are they, are they like, if they're like one page each, that's fine. I think we have Oh, to- yeah. There's three quarters of a page and half a page. Okay, perfect. Yeah, let's do okay. both then, yeah. Okay. Uh, and quickly, background on the story. There's a 90-something-year-old man who went to visit cell block eight at Auschwitz. He was the first person to actually re-enter it after it was uh, shut down. Um and the thing I was struck with was this this um, epigraph of a line, which is, listen, I can't forget. How can I forgive? And my, and my first response was, like, it's been, you know, like, there's so many survivors who have figured out a way to transcend. Mm-hmm. I was um, just sort of taken with the line. And so I read his story, and, and this, this poem came out of it. And it's sort of semi-palindromic. Um, because he keeps revisiting, and in the palindrome form, seem to seem to fit this sort of re- recursive relationship he has with his with his uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Returning to Auschwitz, cell number eight, again and again. Why can't you just forgive? It's been eighty years since you had to drag the dead from boxcars. Eighty years since you watched skin flayed from your rabbi, since they made you pull gold from the teeth of mouths still pink, since you carted corpses to the ovens. Here is an orange peel I found on the road. Can you suck a bit of marrow from it as you did from one which your sister slipped to you through the wire? Can you gaze at the stars and know they didn't dim while you were inside? Here, look, this is cell block number eight, where you slept, when Auschwitz turned you to stone, when you were eleven and all alone. This is where you slept, in cell block number eight. Here, the stars could not see you suffer. You could not hear your sister's cry caught on the razor wire. Remember that orange peel she gave to you? Here is one I found by the side of the road, to help you remember the sweetness in the world, to help you forget that you carted corpses to the ovens, pulled gold from the teeth of mouths still pink and warm, watch as the skin was flayed from your rabbi. It's been 80 years since you had to drag the dead from boxcars. Why can't you just forget? Yeah, powerful poem with that repetition. It was one of the ones I was thinking about this week, uh, returning to Auschwitz cell block number eight again and again. And it just sort of begs the question, like, how could anybody, you know, how could anybody um, forgive? You know, I mean, it, given it's such a, I mean, your whole life is defined by that. You get one life and that's that's what it is, is uh, that just, I mean, the worst experience imaginable. So, well, and, and their, their example, that. There are no examples of people forgetting mm-hmm. unless you know, unless they have you know seriously um, um, serious issues. But there are ex- many examples of folks who at least have have transcended, mm-hmm. and of course they become the iconic images. They become the ones who who um, um, you know become uh, largest in the public imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ilya Wiesel comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Who has sort of transformed his experience into into something greater, and but this man's inability to forgive was so simple, mm-hmm. and it was kind of hard for me to understand at first, given all the other other folks who I've read in, in the popular imagination. Yeah. So yeah, for sure, impetus there. Yeah. Uh, so 
so the other poem, not not to relieve us of the trauma, <laughs> because um, I, I'm struck by the fact that we pay so much attention to, uh, this is called Another Gone, Gone Poem, this one about cracks where hope is hidden, is the real carnage in gun violence are the individual acts. Mm -hmm. um, on the day that I wrote this poem, there were 117 uh, shootings. Wow. That's a lot. Not suicides, not attempted suicides. Mm -hmm. And the, the Gun Violence Archive is a terrific, pla terrific place to look. And this is where the action is of the gun violence in America, not in the mass shootings, but in the individual, in, in it, not to discount the mass shootings, mm -hmm. but it's these individual ones that are the ultimate horror. So this is another gun poem. This one about the cracks where hope is hidden. Let us pull the bullet from the little girl's head. Let us toss it like a flipped coin in the air and watch as the sun glints off of it. Let us see if it will land heads or tails. If tails, from it will grow a hundred more guns, like the dandelions that thrust through cracks in her neighborhood's sidewalks. Heads and the little girl springs from her gurney, pigtails flouncing around, and in her hand, the gun that shot her, transformed, now a seedling, an oak that will grow to crowd out all of the metal-stemmed weeds in her concrete garden of a world. The tossed bullet tumbles through time. The slug of it lands on my palm. I slap it to the back of my hand, and it is neither heads nor tails, just a bloodied chunk. I turn it over, finger to thumb, like I would Blake's grain of sand, peer closely and see the hopes and flesh of another child lodged in its fissures and cracks. Yeah, another powerful poem, another gun poem, and so many of those, unfortunately. Another gun poem, this one about the cracks where hope is hidden. Thanks for sharing that, Dig. Always uh, great poems to share. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Yep. See y'all. Yeah, take care. That was Dick Westheimer, of course. And uh, next up is Audrey Friedman. Oops, let me see Audrey Friedman. Hi, Tim. Hey, Audrey. How you doing? Good. Okay, so the first one I'll read is a prompt poem. Uh -huh. I would never get on that elevator. I realize every time I pass by a hospital room, I peek to see if anyone's dying. The death angel, Malacha Movitz, walks these halls. Not that I could always tell a catnap or anesthesia haze from eternal repose. I do my best to steer clear of this angel, lest the grim glance of the Malacha Movitz get cast on me. So far, I see patients enjoying visitors or they're reading People magazine for gossip on Harry and Meghan, maybe leafing a newspaper to learn why Tucker Carlson left Fox News. Turning to leave, I press the elevator button. The steel doors glide open, revealing a stretcher with a blanketed body. The orderly waves me in with, they never hurt anyone. No thank you, and I bolt into the stairwell, 
hoping the Malachamovitz is respectfully escorting the corpse all the way down. Oh, yeah, great poem. That was, um, I would never get on that elevator. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Okay, I have one more, Tim, and it's one I recently read here, but uh-huh. it was just included in the 18th issue of McQueen's Quinterly. Ah, cool. Recreation. On the beach, I keep one tiny stitch of my mother alive. Try to preserve the synapses between periods of crazy, the quiet between percussive thuds and amphetamine highs, crests and tumbles. There is stasis between the water's advance and retreat, between swallowing and spitting back everything. A time with no charged arcs, no sparks, just a predictable but grateful dance like that my two needles execute, sliding into each woolly loop then out, knitting something to place in my daughter's hand, something much more certain than sand. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks, another one. Really good one. Thanks for sharing Thank that, Audrey. You. You're yeah, welcome. That was from um, a Queen, McQueen's Quinterly. Another, mm-hmm. another magazine that started already using the uh, curation language. So you can post poems on the internet and send them to McQueen's <laughs> Quinterly, which is always nice to know, or read them here first and then submit them there later. So um, we ap- always appreciate magazines that do that. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. You're welcome. All right. Uh, I hate to do this to everybody, but we are going to switch to one poem because people keep coming back. Like, people keep joining. And so it's like a steady stream of 10 people here. So let's do one poem each again, but, but Mike Bales is up next. Great show. I'll have to listen to it again. I do listen to Rattle, some of the good Rattles more than once. Oh, thanks. That's it's, cool to hear, Mike. stuff to take in. Um, it's a prompt poem. I guess one quick side I'd say when when I was out away from flagging, there are certain irritating things around here that I didn't have to deal with. But when I was through flagging, it was me coming home, and I've got more to deal with. And I gave up a lot, a lot of travel by not being a flagger anymore mm-hmm. and it's the poem i send you i've come home from the di- from distant highways yeah i've got it right here go ahead okay i've come home from distant highways i will never leap from a loft of a faded barn as it leans to one side i'll never raise arms like wings to rise and fall in currents of warm air i will never dance and swirl beneath passing clouds and swoop over fresh asphalt daring my death and now I will remain too true to the ground. Now that I'm back home, I'll stay in my lane. I'll take leisurely drives for errands and see old friends. And I'll tell a gypsy story of all I've seen along the way. But now I'll take a moment to bear my age. I'll meet someone new and take her to a scenic overlook somewhere in the countryside. In this moment with her, I'll savor a precious view of the sun to the west when the day bleeds into darkness, as if the dust to come may never be the same. Yeah, excellent. Excellent, Mike. So do you ever think about going back and doing that, or is that just you're totally done with it? Um, my body's too achy to do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I get you. I gave mm-hmm. up too much. I love the people. I love the travel. Mm-hmm. I didn't get along with all the roommates and bad flaggers I had. Some didn't like me because I was older than them, which oh, really? hmm. is too good. Um, I was toying around with the idea of just 
following people who are dropping off polls in Wisconsin, but you never know how many many hours you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, there's no planning. I could plan something, and then I get called to work. I do a lot of events to promote my books now. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to travel a little bit when I've got away. Like last week, I just had two events, which were fun. Mm-hmm. Then I've got a book signing this Sunday. Then this, yeah, this Sunday, then the Saturday after it, I'm at a book fair in Muscatine. Just can't plan that if I'm traveling. That's true. Um, it does take I'll always relive it. In, I'll always relive it in my mind. My, my mind will wander to Wisconsin. And, you know, I'll always relive it. But mm-hmm. I... I'm too achy and too settled here to do it anymore. Yeah, well, I definitely hear you. I don't don't blame you for not wanting to do that anymore. But it's a great, you know, great taking us back in the poems like you usually do. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. It's Mike Bales with a, I've come home from distant highways. Uh, Brian, oh, where's Brian? I was about to click on him and he disappeared. There he is, Brian O'Sullivan. Hey, Brian, how you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm really I'm great. moved by great poems today. Yeah, definitely a very serious topic, but beautiful poems written yeah. about it. So I have a poem that was curated last Monday by the New Verse News, a ah, poet's response type poem uh-huh, yeah. called The Cost of Magic. You have it right here. And again, if you're not familiar with New Verse News, they're sort of a, all they do is a poet's response type thing. I think they publish a poem every day. Is that right or no? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and they've updated I think they published their, two today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're over on Substack now too. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so uh, find them at thenewversenews.substack.com. That's new. Weren't they at Blogspot not too long ago? I, I believe they used to be at Blogspot. Or they do both? They, I think they do both. Oh, I don't okay. know if it's Blogspot, but I know they have a web, a regular mm-hmm. website in addition to the Substack. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's see. Or what's this poem about, first of all? So this was about. Um, this was based on a article that came out in the Irish Times. Uh-huh. Um, they had sent a reporter to a teacher's conference to interview teachers about whether teaching is still an attractive profession. I think teaching has been considered traditionally a really high status and honorable profession in Ireland, but there are some of the same problems that we have here about <clears throat> about pay and, and workload and bureaucracy. Um, and so the you know, question arose, is this still a, a good job to go into? And I thought the different kinds of answers that some of the teachers gave were, were really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I quote them in here. Interesting. Let's hear it. And it was my first attempt at attempt at a gazelle. Ah. A guzzle. I'm sorry. Guzzle. <laughs> um, okay. So all the ring of the teachers told the Irish Times that that magic of being in the classroom is still there. That magic turns a student's face from the cell phone's dim light to the brightness of a peer and an idea. That magic turns some paper mache into a volcano, and it turns jumbled numbers into that kind of magic spell mathematicians call a formula. And it even turns the mangled words of social media into that magic that I, and you, I bet, value just about the most. Words that leap and love and shout that magic, which is to say poetry, will never die. And it's with words and letters that teachers are rewarded, like that magic NT that got dangled off the ends of national teachers' names in Ireland. My dad, being Irish, seemed to believe in that magic. He asked as I trudged through grad school when I'd be getting the letters after my name, that magic PhD, and I thought he was just teasing me. But later I knew that even he, a practical guy, valued that magic of letters. But letters don't pay rent, and so Sean Mayer lives with his parents, still valuing that magic that devalues him. Economists may say that if you get good money and you also get that magic, then you've been paid twice. 
No one goes into teaching expecting huge wages, says Ian Fenton. That magic serves in place of huge wages, and asking for both money and magic might be hubris. But would it, in the end, be all that tragic? Oh, very interesting. Yeah, excellent poem. I love that twist at the end, and uh, great use of the guzzle and all the quotes. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Thank you. Yep, take care. It's Brian O'Sullivan with uh, uh, The Cost of Magic from the Newverse News. Um, I, I didn't. We have uh, some first-time callers, or maybe maybe a long time since callers. Let's go to Cameron. Hey, Cameron, are you there? Oh, I don't hear anything. I'm hearing uh, you, your microphone might be muted. Oh, oh there, you go. Go. there you go. There you go. Hello. Look at me messing this up right off the hop. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. I think you haven't called before, right? I have not called. No, I was um, in a a class with Christine. Actually, oh. we were uh, doing a writing exercise, so I just hopped over here when I was done. Uh, writing a good copy. Oh, very cool. Um, and uh, so, uh, so where are you calling from? And I guess Christine's similar too, or is she? On, is it all Zoom? Uh, I think we're both from Vancouver, BC. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Canada. Okay, very cool. Well, good to have you calling in. So, what is it that you're sharing? Oh, a prompt poem. I see. Yeah, a prompt poem. I think it was uh, something. Or what would you never? Mm-hmm. Was that the prompt? We, it was uh, something like that. I can't remember the exact yeah. phrase until I, unless I check. But yeah. So. You know, she has a nice little exercise where you write down a list of metaphors and then ask yourself questions about one of them and then expand on that. And uh, I just immediately got myself attached to a fun little, almost Dr. Susie kind of thing. So I just went with it. And uh, it's really fun. Yeah, that is so fun. I like to read that. I love going with stuff. Yeah, go ahead. All right. This is uh, called, I would never, I would. When asked of the two of which I would do, always or never, I need no time to choose. No need to have eye for shoulds and or coulds, for when pressed for an answer, I would never, I would. I would never forever, or if I'm being clever, I would never for no time at all, I think that says it better. Better yet say still that if never I shall, I must never forever, for I've always to fill. Now, it may be thought, it's a word to be bought, at the birth of a story, yes, right off the hop. But you couldn't be wronger, and it's a bit of a gonger, but never and all, of, but of never and always, the former's the longer. For to always you must only weigh once, and once you have weighed even one single rhyme, you can said to have made that rhyme for all of time. Oh, I butchered that. Yes, always is no large commitment. There's no need for strength or for wild equipment. In fact, it's ironic that rather than these, it more closely, it's more closely related to overnight shipment. Now, for never to be done. That's a battle hard fought to be won. For while always such a low-hanging fruit, never is a sweater that can only be unspun. You can, you can always twice if you want to, or three times even, or more, really. But to never, that takes a lifetime. A lifetime and then some. So when asked of the two of which I would do, I would never not love you forever. It's true. Ah, that's a sweet poem in the end, too, and very fun throughout. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I stumbled a bit. Yeah, no problem. It's great. It's I just I always wonder why people don't write more just fun poems, you know? And um, and that was a very fun one. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was uh, Cameron uh, Cameron uh, Cameron Boyd. Yeah, thanks so much, Cameron. Great to have you. I hope you come back again. Okay, and let's go to Christine since we were talking about that class. Hey, Christine. Hello. Yeah, how are you tonight? Doing good. I um, yeah. So, what is this class that you're that you're doing? 
I was inspired by your prompt. I teach poetry writing and I was wanting to like start getting students to respond to different prompts from different magazines. And I saw this one and I kind of said to a bunch of students, hey, let's do like a cool challenge where we'll write a poem and then immediately go to an open mic. <laughs> oh, that is so fun. Uh, yeah, how more people do that. It's a great idea. And uh, so when was the class? Was it like literally like just now? Yeah, we just finished and then all jumped over here. Oh, wow, that's so fun. Okay, well, what do you have? Is this the, this is an I would never too, isn't it? This is an I would never, yeah. Something I would never do. I would never send in a poem to be judged that I had not tinkered with relentlessly, pulling the rhythm tight here, testing its stability, removing clumsiness with a scalpel. Shh, shh. Each poem is a vertebrae balancing myself. It must be perfect. Otherwise, this house could fall. Oh, that's excellent. Excellent little poem. Something I would never do. Thanks so much for sharing that, Christine. And, and a special Thank thanks you. for doing a, a project like that with your class. That's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it was uh, Christine Bissonette with um, uh, Something I Would Never Do. Um, and let's go next to another first-time caller, I believe. Um, Jai Dua is here. Yes, thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks so uh, much for joining us. Uh, where are you calling from? Uh, same as uh, Christine and Cameron. I'm in the same class. Ah, same class. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I love it. So, uh, so it's we know what it is. The uh, never, uh, never, uh, you know, some never, whatever the heck the however we put it last week, <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay. Well, here we go. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, again, never say never. Never say never when I can't ever never know. Rustling, bustling, never lose a penny. Never say never when I can't ever never know. Never see my children die. Never be a Russian spy. Never think twice about hurting someone. I am the cause of the fall. Yes, I can seem small, not tall. Not seeing the forests for the trees. Never say never when I can't ever never know. I believe I sneeze. You catch a disease. Never die from cancer. I'll never know your answer. Never lose a penny dropped in the street. Never let me lose you even in defeat. Never say never when I can't ever never know. How will I know where you will go? But it's too late for never say never. You're on to somewhere so much better. Leaving me. Uh, great rhythms in that. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It's, it's just so fun to have a whole class appear here with, uh, with new poems. Thanks so much for sharing that. Love it. Yeah, thanks. Cool. Take care. Um, next up, we have uh, Brent Stauffer. Hello, Brent. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm 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 doing great. Um, I uh, have really enjoyed. Oh, you're breaking the, up. The I think you might have to do. Been, uh, been oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, I think it's. Oh no, yeah. Let's turn off your your camera. It's it's still the okay. bandwidth is low. I love seeing. Do you, I need Brent. to do it. Yeah, just flip off your uh, the, the video and just keep okay. on it. Yeah, yeah, that way the bandwidth will be better. Yeah, okay. So what do you have to share, though, Brent? Uh, all right. Well, I did a uh, a prompt poem, and um, it took me a, a long time to settle on. It was hard to think of things that I would never do mm -hmm. um, that would make a good poem, but um, I finally hit upon something, and and it was uh, it was fun to do. Okay. Well, let's hear it. So, so here it is. Um, for Commander Stoughton, a lifelong conductor. I'll never stand at the podium in the taut silence of anticipation and raise the battered white baton. 
Never feel the entire concert hall lean forward breathlessly waiting for my command to begin. Never coax the double basses from their subterranean homes. Gently admonish the cellos, encourage the violas, and rein in the violin. Never brandish a flourish of French horns, a golden blast of trumpets, thrilling trill of anxious piccolo. If I did, you'd be out there in the crowd, elbowing your neighbor and saying, that's my boy. I mean to say, you would have been. You would have been. Ah, that turns a sweet poem too. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brent. Uh, For Commander Stuff or a lifelong conductor. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Had a great night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, Brent. Yeah, Brent Stoffer, uh for Commander Stoffer, a lifelong conductor. I love the, the repetition there. I th- thought. Uh, I thought actually, I had a thought that this would be a great pomp for Brent. He does like the repetition, <laughs> and it sets you up for that perfectly. Good job, Brent. All right, thanks. <laughs> All right, and then we have two more people left on the line. I think uh, Bishwajit Mishra is next. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bishwajit. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> okay, let me just jump. Yeah, people, it's long, so let me jump into my prompt form first. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, so uh, I, it's okay. Is it the Clint Eastwood? Uh, yeah, okay. I'm, I met Clint Eastwood. Okay, yeah, go for it. I met Clint Eastwood and forgot to take a selfie. I was reading a new poem to a friend. When suddenly I remembered when I was talking about Alcatraz, which was in the poem, that I saw him in a dream but forgot. I always forget dreams, but this one came back of how I saw him sitting in a corner seat in a restaurant, like a place I can't place a finger on as to where. More like a fused version of restaurants and bars and cafes I might have seen. I knew who he was, but we chatted like normal people, chatting up to fill their hours when nothing is pressing. Not like old friends, but chance acquaintances who turn friendly fast. People came by taking selfies, and that reminded me of who he was, and I should take a selfie, which he seemed cool with, but I deferred that for later as he was going to go around with me seeing the city, uh, not sightseeing really, but more like hanging out. I introduced him to my family and the same friend I was narrating the dream to in places that didn't look like any I had known, but seemed familiar like an after test. Then he left. I don't remember well if it was after the dream broke or in it, that I thought I should have taken a selfie. I might have been too self-conscious to show eagerness in rushing that, and I should never have forgotten to give him my card. But my office had moved, and I didn't have a new card yet, and nobody uses cards anymore. Not much need, because personal meetings have become outdated. We are just convalescing out of a pandemic evolving gradually from elbow kiss to fist bumps to handshakes. But I could have given him my number, asking him to save it on his phone. I woke up with an uneasy feeling. I was really Even when... Oh, sorry. 
sorry. Even when I recounted this to my friend, that uneasiness stuck like a sweater shirt back after getting off a car on a hot day. I almost felt like I would vow that I will never forget to take a selfie with him. And I will never forget to give him my number. Even in a dream, don't they say the line between dream and reality could be fuzzy? So be it a dream or a simulated world or real, I will never forget to ask Clint Eastwood next time I see him before he leaves to at least give me a missed call. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that. Sorry for cutting you off at the paid break, and you needed yeah. that too to get it to get it to fit the prompt. I didn't even know, but uh, yeah, I was just, <laughs> yeah, I was say, yeah, that was a really such a good dream. I forgot in the middle of the poem that it was a dream. I was imagining you with Clint Eastwood. It was great, and then the it happened like that. I forgot about it. And I was I was writing about a poem, and there was Alcatraz, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, suddenly I thought, oh, wait a minute, I did I see Clint Eastwood, and I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen his movie. I, I haven't seen a movie for, of him in the last three years. Yeah. I don't know. The last one was probably The Moon. Mm-hmm. I haven't <laughs> seen him in a while either. But I, I was thinking, yeah. too, that I hadn't realized until you mentioned it that we've gone back to handshakes. At the, you know, like... And I don't yeah. even. I didn't they even notice like, the tradition. Like yeah, because like at the <laughs> softball league yesterday, we were all like shaking hands, and, and a year or two ago, we were like you know doing the elbow. So I don't even know. I don't know how I didn't notice that, but I didn't. You're right. Yeah, very interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, well, I'll take one half a minute. I'll just tell you uh, that last pick for you showed the last poem mm-hmm. and, uh, when the poets about the uh, Holocaust. That was called SS. Asquiz, uh, 1944 or yeah. something, mm-hmm. and the families were lining up. I've seen pictures like that. Mm-hmm. But somehow, because the way the poet was reading the poem and something, it, it blinded me out for 15, 20 minutes. Oh, wow. I was, while we were talking, I was writing a poem. Oh, wow. I, it's just an idea came. Mm-hmm. Maybe some other time I'll send it to you. It's just a one-page poem. <laughs> it took a reverse take on that. It just came to me. I couldn't stop. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, maybe next week we can share that. Yeah, yeah. yeah very cool. Well, thanks so much, Richard. <laughs> okay. Always, always have a, happy have to have you. Have a good night, Yep, you yeah, too. Thank you. All right. And then last up is, I think last up, right? Yep, last up is Deb Tannenbaum. Um, hi, Tim. Hey, Deb. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. Do you want to keep the camera off? It's uh, it's off if you want to. Yeah, I'm just not, fe- I'm feeling kind of camera shy today. Yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of these days I'll have the camera off. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, can, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when I have like a big black eye or something. But anyway. Um, uh, so what is your, uh, what was your poem about? Well, I, I um, actually have a prompt poem from last week. I uh, missed the the live rattlecast, and mm-hmm. so I thought I'd uh, share uh, my last week's poem. And it was funny because I was watching the replay, and you were talking about this style with the colons and how you know usually poems are flowing, but with the with this style, it's more like being on a staircase, and you don't want to flow down a staircase. And I laughed because. <laughs> You'll see why when I when I read my poem. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Okay, so this was the prompt was to use that style uh, from Julia Kolchinsky Dasbach, who has several right. poems in her book Forty Weeks. Uh, they have these. The, you'll see it. They have these uh, the colons that way. So it's sort of this like f- like right. disjointed flow of like similes down a page. It's interesting. So let's see. Right. Here. 
and I don't know how I did with the simile part. And I also realized I sent you um, an earlier version. So I'll read my current version, but it'll be a little different. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Um, downward dog. Remember that time? Long flight of stairs. Little Maggie stumbled. Log rolled down the terraced slope, fluid as a waterfall. Then stuck the landing. Upright, tail waving, canine queen of the cascade. Maggie has grown ancient, weak. No more stairs for her. Portage her to the yard. Funnel her to the ground. She eddies around in the summer sun till her tongue hangs down. Gather her looseness, your arms encircle, your face submerges, silky ripples of golden fur, to kiss her body, to inhale her toasty scent, then gaze nose to nose, her warm tongue laps, absorbs the salt of you, blur together one body of water, stream in circles, puddle under a cloud. She will ferry your salt to her burial ground. Oh, that is a beautiful poem, Deb. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, really the really moving. There's a stillness to it, and the, the colons work really to slow it down in a nice way, too. Uh, and that is going to wrap up the open lines for tonight. Let's do the prop, or the, the Saiku really quickly. Now, the Saiku is based on this article, which I enjoyed. You know, it's, it's rare to see a nice news article. This is out of UCLA. I'll put it up on screen. Yeah. Um, Small acts of kindness are frequent and universal study finds. So what this team at UCLA did is they took um, video of people at, I think, eight different really diverse cities across, or cities and towns and rural places across the world and watched people make bids for help and then how often those requests um, for help or small acts of kindness, as they put it, were um, approved and how much they were denied. And it's really universal. People, um, if it's something little that um, you can do to help somebody, seven times out of ten, we do it. Or, and, um, or Actually, no, that's not right. Seven times as often is how they put it. They, we, we accept it seven times more often than we uh, deny it. And if we deny it, we give an ex- reason why. And that's universal across so many different cultures. It's always been thought of that altruism was a cultural construct. But really, this study shows for the first time that um, there's a universality to small acts of kindness, which I thought was a nice, a nice study. And that was out of UCLA. So the haiku that inspired is this right here. Let me get that post office door square dance. Let me get that post office door square dance. That is your Saiku for the week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. A pleasure, as always. A wonderful, powerful show. The book, of course, was New Voices and not an anthology, as we talked about at length, even though I kept calling it that. It's really a project, and and the process is just as important as the product. And so um, that is, of course, um, Howard Debs was the editor. Um, It came from uh, from a Valentine Mitchell Press, and you can find that. Um, uh, more information and a whole bunch of ways you can participate and do more at their website, uh, newvoicesproject.org, which I might have forgotten to say at the end of the segment. I think I think Howard might have said it, though. Um, so anyway, great show this week. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be... Oh, wait, no. Before I do next week's guest, let me do next week's prompt. I always, I always forget that. Next week's prompt, based on this book, is the following... Um, find a photograph at least 100 years old that includes a person. 
write a poem as a letter to that person. So do the same thing. Try to find some way to connect to somebody that you, whether you know them, maybe it's an ancestor, maybe it's just some random stranger um, that you don't know what's going on, um, but find a picture. There are a lot of archive websites. Um, um, you know, the National Archives have so many photos that are great, um, but, but find some photograph that's at least 100 years old so that, that there's some distance and then try to find a connection. That is the prompt. Write a poem as a letter to that person. That is next week's prompt. And now next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Michael Goldman. I should have put Michael Favala Goldman um, in there. Um, he was the uh, interviewee for Rattle number 77, which was a tribute to translation. Um, he tra- translates all the great um, uh, Danish poets. And, and, and novels too and um, his newest book though of his own poems is this may sound familiar so we'll talk about that we'll talk about translation we'll share a whole bunch of poems that is next week's guest Michael Goldman Michael Favala Goldman um, Radicast number 193 Monday May 8th the regular time 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific hope to see you then hope you have a great week in the meantime and I will talk to you later Good night. <laughs>